Welcome to the Urgent Matters podcast. This is a series where leading experts from around the world share with us their latest insights into overactive bladder. I'm your host, Professor Paul Abrams, and I'm delighted that you have joined us for this latest instalment. Obviously, the effectiveness of the management of overactive bladder depends on sufferers seeking help and there being clinicians who are able to offer effective treatments. We want to focus today on healthcare practitioners and whether they have uh, the beneficial effect on people with OAB that we expect. In particular, we also want to talk about new technologies that might help sufferers improve their quality of life. We know that attitudes and beliefs around the world about OAB differ very considerably. And sadly, patients often feel that their clinicians do not take their overactive bladder symptoms seriously. And I think they often believe that there are far more serious diseases and perhaps even their symptoms don't warrant uh, proper care or the same level of care. Today we're very lucky to have Professor Marcus Drake to discuss these issues with us. He is Professor of Physiological Urology at the University of Bristol and a consultant urological surgeon at the Bristol Urological Institute. He helped greatly in developing our understanding of the pathophysiology of overactive bladder by demonstrating in bladder muscle that micromotions and microcontractions occur and that these will lead to involuntary symptomatic contractions in the patient. He's also been responsible for leading several important trials on drugs used in the treatment of overactive bladder. And he's worked on these issues and others extensively with both the European Association of Urology and the ICS. So, Marcus, uh, perhaps you could tell us what you think about the current attitudes of clinicians uh, to overactive bladder. Well, hello, Paul. And I'm very pleased to see, actually, the community is starting to recognise overactive bladder as a clinical reality. It seems to have shifted substantially over the last 10 years, so that nowadays I think it's fair to say there really is an appreciation that this can have a massive impact on quality of life. In other words, it really makes people feel ashamed. It prevents them from working in a productive way. They're always anxious. It really has such a big impact. And in the past, I think it's fair to say, too often this issue was trivialized, both within society and also even within the clinical community. So I think at least the clinical community is rather less dismissive uh, that this is simply something that you should expect with ageing. And there will be attempts to try to understand the problem and to put in place measures that could make it less severe. Thank you. So we can reassure patients that clinicians will take their overactive bladder symptoms seriously. There have, of course, been efforts to involve family doctors in the management of overactive bladder. Do you think these have been successful? Yeah, I think we can say that many uh, clinicians will be supportive. I don't think it's fully saturated the entire knowledge base of the clinical community. There's still work to do. So 
whilst there is definitely a greater awareness now of OAB among our primary care doctors, we have this problem that urology is not that well covered in many medical schools. It seems to take a back seat behind uh, particularly emergency medicine, primary care and cardiovascular disease, which is understandable, but it means that there is a knowledge gap when people qualify as doctors. And it's really a huge priority that once people actually enter a primary care job, that there are good opportunities to help them to gain knowledge on OAB. I think that's really the only way that we can make sure that if a patient does come to see a doctor, that it will actually be attended to with respect, consideration, professionalism, and with appropriate measures. This, this does seem a remarkable situation in the sense that we know from prevalent studies in the community that 10% of the population have overactive bladder symptoms. Of course, that would, that's 10% within uh, the middle years of life. It's, of course, much higher prevalence than that in elderly people. And maybe extraordinary that medical students are not taught about overactive bladder in a systematic way. Is that just in this country or is it wider than that throughout the world, do you think? So it is an issue in this country um, and I am involved in medical student teaching and even with a role to play in the medical school, I find it difficult to introduce OAB into the curriculum and partly because of the nature of modern medical education makes it uh, less the case that specific conditions are gone through in considerable detail. Now, whether that applies in other countries, I, I would be inclined to suggest that there is such a demand for doctors nowadays uh, with a shortfall in healthcare provision um, that the need to push people quickly through the system will marginalise this sort of condition, one that is seen as a relatively low priority in terms of health uh, and future risk and cost. So I suspect that worldwide there will be pockets of good practice, but that broadly speaking, there still needs to be a strong thrust to improving general knowledge level. And how do you think that is best achieved? The absolute priority has got to be about improving knowledge base, uh, particularly in um, developing countries perhaps, because the complexity of these lower urinary tract symptoms is really not that well understood. And education, in its most uh, fundamental, pragmatic approach, really has to be provided uh, as broadly as possible. Yes, yeah, so there are problems on quite a number of levels. Um, I, I just want to go back really to, I suppose you could say, to the beginning of education, and that, we might say, will start with the patient. I know you've been interested in self-care initiatives. So is this where we should be starting with functional disorders? And in this case, we're talking about OAB and saying to the patient, these are the things that you can do and providing the knowledge. How much progress are we making in that with overactive bladder? I would say we're doing a reasonably promising start. 
because there's certainly a lot of information available of good quality. Um, I do perceive a couple of problems, though. For a start, actually heading in the right direction when you head to the internet and do a search for a symptom that you're experiencing, the language used is not necessarily uh, going to take you into the right circumstance. So, for example, it's pretty common for people to think that what they're experiencing is cystitis. And consequently, they'll search for cystitis and end up in entirely the wrong direction for self-help of their own condition. So actually um, making it clear to the public what is the nature of the problem so that they can end up recognising that that does apply to them and steers them to the right starting point, I think that would be quite valuable. Um, I'm also very conscious that out there, there is a lot of really bad information. There is um, misleading, um, inappropriate, um, biased information that, that, that is widespread in any aspect of internet um, knowledge. And the same applies to OAB. So steering people away from the rubbish and towards the quality uh, has to be a very important aspect. But trying to strike a positive note, you're right, we do have considerable interest at uh, Bristol Urological Institute in doing a good job of making sure self-help is effective. And so we've recently completed a study where we randomised a thousand men with lower urinary tract symptoms towards supported self-help versus usual practice. And we were able to demonstrate with that that actually effectively written knowledge with some healthcare input to steer people in the right direction does result in a significant improvement in their lower urinary tract symptoms compared with standard practice. So self-help can be extremely effective if people started off in the right direction. Within the self-help, presumably there has to be a preamble about different types of incontinence. And one is conscious that over the years you, you've seen patients in outpatients who come up and appear to have been told that they have stress incontinence when they have urgency incontinence, etc. How easy is it in the self-care situation to set the scenario where the patient can identify what type of leakage they've got and therefore go down the right, the appropriate route of self-care. Has that proved easy? It's manageable, I think is perhaps, I certainly wouldn't use the word easy, but manageable. I mean, people can be objective and they can show common sense. Unfortunately, um, they may have been preloaded with some suppositions by friends or family members, meaning that, oh, you've obviously got stress incontinence, like I have, uh, from a mother to a daughter, is, is quite a common um, situation that we encounter. Um, and so they are, you know, in, in respecting one's parent, uh, which I think does occasionally still happen, um, does result in an assumption that what's being, being dealt with is the same as your mother. Um, and the consequence is they're less receptive to the fact that actually it's not necessarily the same as somebody else's symptoms. So if we can overcome that sort of 
I assume I've got the same as my mother because I'm her daughter. If we could overcome that, then we might be uh, able to get a more promising start for individuals. So I do have to sometimes explain, well, yeah, okay, but she might be your mother, but she is actually a different person. And what you're describing actually uh, very much is one of urgency. You're having to rush. You're not necessarily making it time in time. So this alternative, logical, pragmatic, common sense approach can overcome that, but it does require the healthcare professional sometimes to really steer into the appropriate pathway. We know from persistence data that um, only a minority of patients continue to take overactive bladder drugs in the long term. Is this in part because of a lack of follow-up and, and this philosophy that you mentioned that here's your drug, you'll be fine now. This seems to be not setting the goals and expectations with the patient at the correct level. Is that, is that true? That's absolutely true. So um, if, if you really wanted to make sure that somebody felt that they were getting benefit from the drug, you need to be actually saying to them, this is the sort of thing that you might expect. So if somebody's got quite severe overactive bladder, and particularly if they've got incontinence associated with it, I think it's very, very important as you give the prescription to say, it's really essential that your fluid intake is appropriate. And you must be doing your bladder training and pelvic floor exercises because that's valuable. And you must be thinking about uh, making sure that you can uh, obtain access to the toilet, feeling confident that you'll have sufficient time. If you then take your medication, take it regularly, then what will most likely happen is that you'll get some more time warning time before you need to get to the toilet. You'll probably go to the toilet a bit less often. I regret to say that this will not normalize you and give you a teenager's bladder, but it should give you the confidence that you could do most of the things that you would like to do. For example, go on a journey or complete a meeting. So in other words, if you could just phrase it in a way that gives the person a realistic understanding that this is going to ameliorate but not cure, it's only going to help whilst you actually take the tablet. It's not resolving the underlying mechanism because that can't be done. Um, and just gave them, gave them some permission to, to sort of experience improvement as being a good outcome. Because I think sometimes it's, it is far too often that, well, top of the list is this drug. And therefore, by doing this, this is going to be good. Just does not... You know, in, in setting unrealistic expectations for the patient, when it doesn't turn out like that, they're going to stop the drug because they think it's not worked for them. Well, I think that's a very important point. I, I, I mean, NICE, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, has recommended in OAB that all patients should have a follow-up appointment after the prescription of OAB drugs. Do you think this actually happens? Well, a reliable follow-up appointment is absolutely essential because you do need to really be explaining how to deal with, for example, the dry mouth that might result. So whilst you say you might experience a dry mouth, that's such a varied thing that uh, people can be, um, you know, really in need of some simple advice on how to deal with that once, once they actually realise that it certainly does apply to them. And also how to deal with constipation 
a range of things where, you know, slightly unexpected stuff just needs a sensible person just to reassure and then suggest what you might do. Also, the follow-up is about ensuring that there has been sufficient response. And so if that's overlooked, then, you know, you're just casting the person back into uh, an unsupported environment where they just feel, oh, well, the medical profession doesn't have an effective treatment and frankly doesn't care either. That is a very bad message to, to give to our patients, I'd say. Thank you very much. Um, Marcus, there are, of course, guidelines. I've mentioned NICE, but there are also international guidelines, the EAU, uh, the European Association of Urology, and the American Urological Association have produced guidelines about overactive bladder. Uh, are they similar, and are they something we should be bringing to the attention of all doctors, including primary care doctors? Yes, I think the, the process for the development of guidelines has been a very constructive development of the last couple of decades, and I'm, I'm strongly in favour. Well, I'm most familiar, of course, with the European guidelines, and these have really been a very sensible approach in the sense that uh, you need to do the basics, make sure that they're properly done, and go through a sequential process where you increase the level of intervention. You're starting obviously with the patient's own self-help measures and then proceeding through a range of medications, including a choice of different medications and potentially combination of medications, and then going on to the interventional treatments with a very careful process of confirming diagnosis, checking everything is properly evaluated before you get on to an interventional approach. And I think this has been constructive because it does make sure that the less intrusive basic stuff is properly done fully before you take a more aggressive approach. And I think this works well and most patients do express a desire to do the least possible to get into a situation where they can cope. And there is a contrasting approach from the American Urological Association, which seems to have a more um, powerful focus on patient choice. Um, there very much is the importance of dialogue underlined between healthcare professional and patient and a patient-led approach I think that it has to be remembered within the AUA pathway that there is the need to ensure that simple basic measures must be done properly. Um, it, it would worry me, for example, if an interventional approach was followed relatively quickly without a proper check that the patient's fluid intake is appropriate, simply because interventional treatment is not an antidote to caffeine. So if the patient is still drinking five or six cups of coffee a day, you're not going to get anywhere, even with sacral neuromodulation or botulinum injections. Unfortunately, you actually risk doing harm rather than good in that situation. So I do think it is vital that people recognize the importance of the basics and don't permit um, a patient who feels that, in effect, sorting out this symptom is the doctor's responsibility. It is a shared care pathway in which the patient must also play their part. 
Uh, Marcus, the, the new EAU guidelines are innovative in the sense that they, they look at all lower urinary tract symptoms in, in women uh, and then there will be a similar guideline in men. Are there lessons to be learnt from this new female LUTs guideline? Yes, it's definitely been a very constructive introduction. Uh, the, the guideline is, is really quite practical, uh, designed to reflect clinical practice in terms of the assessment and the treatment, which as we've discussed, are both absolutely critical. Um, they're also really taken a step forward in an acceptance of the range of medications that we do now have available, including to use beta-3 agonist as a viable alternative introduction of medication. You can use beta-3 agonist as first line or as an alternative drug, and it is an acceptable and legitimate choice. And I think this really has been a constructive uh, development in the guidelines panel's recommendations. Thank you very much. Well, it's been a, a great pleasure having you with us. I think you brought out many very important issues. Taking from the patient's home through to secondary care, I think uh, your work on self-care is really important and something that has to be increased. And of course, it's utterly dependent on good quality education available to the public, to the patients and the carers. Then the patient can go to the GP, hopefully having been asked to fill in a validated questionnaire and a bladder diary. The GP then is in the best possible situation to evaluate what needs to be done, to plan the therapy, to use drugs when necessary, perhaps to manipulate the drugs, add a drug, change a drug, before thinking of sending the patient on to secondary care. And everyone can be guided by the guidelines. Uh, and the new EAU guidelines are excellent and, as you've said, pragmatic and incorporate overactive bladder into the whole area of lower urinary tract symptoms, which, as you've pointed out, is very important because many patients, particularly elderly, come with overactive bladder, certainly, but may come with other conditions in men, uh, prostatic obstruction, and in both men and women, perhaps nocturnal polyuria. And this all needs sorted out to improve the patient's quality of life to the maximum. So thanks again for your participation in this very useful podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Urgent Matters podcast series. And we hope that this has helped share further insights into overactive bladder. We would like to thank Estellas for their kind support in sponsoring this podcast. Please stay tuned for the next episode where we continue to explore key insights from experts in the field of OAB.